Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Tom Bagri. Tom is the CEO of LifeSearch, the UK's leading protection broker. Tom, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, the purpose of this podcast is to gather um, a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. And leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the ongoing COVID-19 situation and business leaders having to navigate their way through that. Tell me, Tom, for somebody in your line of work, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been a huge challenge in that respect. Uh, Yes, it has, but uh, less so uh, for us than many businesses. Uh, for whom I have enormous sympathy, uh, simply because our line of work is life and protection uh, insurance, disability insurance. And, you know, that's very much uh, in consumers' minds at the moment. So compared to, say, a travel agent or hotelier, uh, goodness me, uh, I'm a very lucky man indeed to be in the line of work I'm in. Uh, in addition, we have for years championed remote working. Um, and... Uh, so we were able to cope with the uh, uh, overall uh, switch uh, on lockdown day without any difficulty. So my focus really has been on uh, not kind of disaster recovery, which is what so many have had to do, but uh, by, by fluke and perhaps a decent judgment beforehand, um, to focus on how we uh, keep morale high, keep uh, uh, people working effectively, and happily uh, and support them in uh, what is obviously in many cases a very complex home and work environment. It is very complex, absolutely. And you hear a great deal of uh, stories about um, businesses um, whose employees essentially are getting their heads down and mucking in whether they've had to return to their working sites or whether they've been working remotely. And I think that attitude comes from the fact that there is that kind of connectivity to um, everybody else in the company, isn't it? There's a great deal of communication there from leader down to employees. And that's an, an important part of company culture, isn't it? To help keep morale up, as you say there. Yes, I think it's, it's phenomenally important to use uh, all the technology that we, we now have. Uh, everyone's using Zoom, but uh, we, we've long used uh, Yammer as an internal um, kind of Facebook feed where everyone can post whatever they want. Uh, and we've uh, run it in a, a very open fashion so that criticisms and challenges are, are allowed. Very few are posted publicly, just in the natural way of things, but lots of praise and recognition and thanks for people doing a job and expert. And that doesn't half help boost the morale of a home worker uh, or, uh, or indeed anybody uh, when, when you get praised publicly on, on the sort of internal systems. It's, uh, it's vital that the, uh, the level of communication is increased. But the downside to that, Scott, is that you can be forcing your people to spend you know, 12 straight hours on Zoom, uh, call after call after call, but sort of driving them mad as, as really everyone tries to communicate with each other and they try and do their day job for customers as well. So it does need a bit of leadership uh, from the top to control the urge to, uh, to, to help everybody. Um, but I guess only when one is in a position where most people do feel, or all people do feel properly helped. Absolutely. Um, it's important to maintain that guiding hand in a way, isn't it? Because um, it's it's a lot easier when you're working remotely and there isn't that sort of day-to-day human contact to kind of lose your way a little bit, I suppose, isn't it? 
oh, I think very easy to do that. Uh, and also to feel guilty uh, because if, if you do slack off for a while or you do simply get nothing done or you do a job badly, there's really no one to bounce off and feed off unless you proactively reach out to someone, which you know, it's tough to do when you're feeling feeling down. So your leaders, uh, your leaders have to, what's the word, try and get it right between mm-hmm. making gentle inquiry on a regular basis uh, as to how you are and what's going on um, and uh, trying to help you through the difficult moments, but at the same time, really just being there for you when, when you need it. I think a great, a difficult area for everybody is the, the having a difficult conversations with people remotely uh, where uh, someone's underperformed or just done something bad that you don't want to happen again. How, uh, how do you do that uh, on Zoom? Uh, how do you get the nuance right between challenging and, in effect, criticizing or, or, or trying not to say that, you know, trying, trying to improve, but at the same time trying to support. Uh, with, with body language in, in a room, it's perfectly possible for a good leader to combine all those nuanced messages into something which gets someone to do better, but nonetheless leaves them feeling positive uh, and not just, you know, bullied. But on Zoom, it's just harder to do. Perfectly possible, but harder to do. I think one has to devote a lot of thought in preparation for a, for a, a, you know, a difficult conversation with, with someone. Um, and uh, make sure one gets it very uh, properly done. I think you're absolutely right in what you say there, Tom. It's an important part of being leader, isn't it, to be able to manage people in that way and understand the human psychology to a certain degree. And it can be difficult, um, as you say, to express um, certain nuances over Zoom. And it's going to be a bit of a long-term challenge, this, isn't it? Because a lot of people are saying during this time that this could be one of the ways that we fundamentally end up working um, in the future, and this could be a new norm for all of us. Yeah, absolutely right. The um, The way to overcome it, I think, is to, to, to work from a base of a very strong and clearly defined culture uh, and with reference to a very clearly defined purpose. Now, quite hard, but certainly not impossible to do that from a start now. Um, but in our case, we, we've, we wrote our purpose out in 2007 and it hasn't changed. It's very clear. Uh, and Everyone in the company has heard it repeated. Oh, I would, I would say at least once for every month they've been in the company. Put it that way. Uh, since 2007, so that's a lot of repetition and a lot of focus on that. Uh, and then that that's supported by very clear values, uh, which would have been co-created and delivered uh, through the company. And again, talked about as, as often as possible, rather than just left as, as inspiring words on a wall from some meetings that happened long ago, which is the fate of many. Uh, cultural programs uh, corporately, I think. It's that uh, that defining of the purpose and the culture. Mm-hmm. But even if you've never done it before, now is the time to start. Uh, now is the time to, to, to build that clear understanding amongst everyone who works in a business as to what it's for and how it's meant to be done at, at a very deep, at a visceral level. Uh, it's never too, uh, never too late to start that. And um, I do think long term, as our physical contact remains diminished, which it's absolutely certain to do, in my view, so the underlying buy-in of individual psyches to a purpose and a defined culture is utterly critical to maintaining, uh, maintaining corporate momentum going forward. Um, do you think it's a bit of a challenge striking a balance between sticking by certain values and principles and then balancing that out with innovating and adapting? No, no, I really don't. Um, the, uh, 
that sounds very cut and dry, so I better try and explain myself. Uh, why, why do I say that? Well, the first thing that doesn't ever adapt or change is the purpose. If a business needs to change its purpose, it needs to become a different business. So have a purpose which you can uh, support forever. Uh, there are lots of examples out there. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the first thing. As to the underlying values, well, I'll give you our five because they're a little different. They're openness, honesty, tolerance, care, and excellence. Only the last one is a sort of business value, if you like. Mm. The rest is personal behavior values. And it's the openness and honesty that I think is going to be key to going forward uh, successfully for any business. When, when you're a leader, uh, you're either a kind of what I would call a military leader, where you are in charge of a big organization, it's got its history all laid down, it could be a giant insurance company or bank or whatever it might be, or, or even much smaller, but still with a long history. You've come in, you're the uh, general in charge, uh, and uh, yeah, make the right decisions and you're going to have a good, uh, good time. Make mistakes, which obviously everybody does, and then it's a question of just how open and honest were you with your people about the obvious fact that you would make mistakes, about what your choices were when you made that mistake. And were you uh, honest about that in advance? Were you honest about that through the decision-making process? Uh, and uh, rather than just afterwards. That's what we mean by openness. And I do think an absolute key for modern leadership is, is to avoid the, the military-style top-down leadership. Mm. And, uh, well, I call it root leadership. Uh, at the bottom of our organizational tree is me. I founded the business, so I sit at the bottom of it. There are 500 people above me on the tree. And, uh, you know, I'm the roots, not the, uh, not the leaves at the top, the customer faces who do all the work. They're the leaves at the top. They're, they're generating the photosynthesis that gives us the energy and makes us survive. I'm part of a, a, a deeper core thing. So from the roots basis, if you've been honest year after year or if you're honest from now uh, about the way you go about decision-making, yeah, then your people will forgive you a mistake because they understand them uh, and they'll keep following you and, and keep adhering to the purpose. So I think honesty uh, needs nuancing. It's more about being open, open up front. Uh, as I listen to politicians, uh, the, the government, Boris and so on TV, I just wish they would be absolutely honest about the fact that they really actually haven't got a clue. They've got lots of clues, hundreds of clues, and they're trying to work out which ones mean something and which ones don't in real time. Uh, and that uh, you know, there are just so many variables. Instead, they always like to do the military thing, which is to try and inspire confidence in uh, masses by pretending they're certain they're right, or they've got a really good plan. That's just never true. All plans are, are hazy until they suddenly look very good, and then yay, <laughs> you'd be a good military leader. Uh, a modern roots, uh, a modern leader needs to be a roots leader and lead from the uh, the, the, the great bottom up. I think that's a very fascinating uh, perspective there. And you talk a lot about the importance of um, openness, transparency, and uh, taking people with you as a leader and essentially being inspiring in that sense. Um, are there any examples of people who have cropped up throughout your career who maybe been an inspiration to yourself, Tom? Oh, hang on. I haven't heard an answer to that one. So the answer is no. Otherwise, it will flimish around. But of course, there have. There have been loads of people who've been inspired. But oh, characters from history more. Um, uh, and. Um, well, I'm no longer a religious man, but I was raised in the Christian tradition, uh, and it always seems to me that the uh, the uh, stories of the New Testament are uh, just an unbelievable way to uh, run a life and run a business. Do to others as you would be done by in financial services. We just adhere to that motto. 
I don't think we even need to have a regulator. So, uh, so I guess if you're asking me for an inspiration, um, uh, even though I'm probably not a believer, it uh, it would go back to there. That, that, those are fundamental truths, and I think they occur in every religion, uh, deep down in the, in, in the books. Um, and uh, yeah, those are just basic truths of, of mankind and how we work. If uh, if you do to others as you would be done by, then you are uh, yeah, you're going to be a good person and a good leader, and uh, yeah, a good follower too. And of course, alongside that, experience itself is um, a fantastic teacher um, in its own right. And based upon your years of experience um, in um, the business environment, Tom, uh, do you have any advice that you would give to the younger generations of people who are aspiring to be in leadership roles in future? Yes, I, I, I think a lot of them just get it. I, I think the uh, the younger generations coming through, uh, particularly in their 20s and 30s, they do get the need to be open. Uh, they really are naturally open. They've been open about their lives on social media ever since they could you know, press a keypad. So uh, for them, there's a degree of uh, natural openness, which basically I would advise them to keep. I would, uh, uh, I would say that when people talk about inspirational leaders, what they actually mean is leaders who have demonstrated over a long period of time that their intense intentions are reliable, that you, you know where they're coming from and you know where they're trying to get to, and then you'll humor their failures. And indeed, I've simply found over the years that the more honest you are with people, the more open you are with people, the more they call you inspiring. Um, and yeah, in reality, I often think, well, you know who the best leader is? The best leader is one who doesn't make a mistake, who gets all the decisions right. And I do meet very clever people who lead very large businesses who aren't particularly inspiring, but are clearly geniuses. And I go, yeah, well, that's that's the leader I would follow. Um, but for those of us who just ain't geniuses, who are just normal people uh, who have started businesses and therefore got into a leadership position by kind of default, um, I think our best tool is, is not infallibility because that ain't going to happen. Our best tool is, is honesty, but a particular version of honesty. I've said already on the podcast, uh, openness. So my advice would simply be be open. Trust your people with your knowledge, with your doubts, with your fears. Also, when you do that, accept that you will be frightening them uh, and therefore be very clear as to your plan to deal with those. They'll be sharing the fears. You need to give them very uh, clear insights as to how you're going to beat those fears. Uh, but never never be worried about admitting your fears to your people. That, that again, is something that inspires them. Ah, just because it's openness, isn't it? More of the same. Right? Mm. And it's interesting as well that you talk about infall- um, avoiding infallibility, Tom, because um, I think um, in many ways um, it is an important experience to try new things and make mistakes, especially as a leader, and also be willing to learn from that and be able to improve. It's a vital part of one's development, that, isn't it? It absolutely is. Absolutely is. I'm, I'm 59 years old, so I was born uh, just 15 years after the Second World War, and my father served in North Africa and Italy uh, and uh, I uh, constantly had a history of that. And so in these uh, lockdown times, I uh, isolate myself from my uh, little family in, in, in our home and uh, sit in a room and watch old war movies, which is deeply embarrassing and hugely politically incorrect. And I really shouldn't uh, confess to it in, on the radio. But uh, even worse, the, uh, the the movie I just watched is the least politically correct of all Second World War leaders, I suspect, well, all the ones from the Allied forces, a chap called George F. Patton. Um, and he uh, uh, was there an S anyway, Patton. And he may, and there was a movie made of his life starring George C. Scott, who declined the Oscar he won for that performance. Uh, an awesome portrayal of a man, but a man hugely flawed. Mm. Uh, and nonetheless, he 
was not a preparer and a careful mistake avoider. He was a sort of galloping cavalryman who shot his mouth off at every, every opportunity, sort of like I'm doing now. And um, you contrast him with uh, his opposite member on the English side, uh, Montgomery, who never started the fight unless he had built up miles and miles of reserves to ensure he could win it, thus taking uh, forever to win his battles, whereas Patton uh, screamed through things in a hurry. Uh, and just looking at those contrasting styles, who was the better one? Well, you kind of need both, I guess, on the leadership mm. team, but it's sort of more fun for everybody if the ultimate leader is the gung-ho person, but they've got enough humility to have the uh, the wise planners and, uh, and thoughtful uh, preparers surrounding them. That's, uh, that's a good model to build, I think. I think um, that's like. very interesting like indeed, yeah. <laughs> but certainly it's a fantastic model, Tom. And um, if we do think about the um, the future going forward now before um, we do wrap things up on the uh, programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next uh, 12 months will hold for yourself and for Life Search, and what you hope to achieve in that time as well, not just in navigating the current COVID situation, but also in emerging from the other side of the pandemic also. You know, Scott, that is a really big issue. At the moment, uh, we're trading very strongly, as I said, but in a time of mass unemployment, uh, should that happen, and I read last night the government is currently paying over half, uh, over half the working people in Britain, so that really can't continue uh, for very long. Uh, if what follows, and I really hope it doesn't, but if what follows is a, uh, a period of mass unemployment, then my lovely business will, will face uh, the same terrifying challenges as, as, as others are already facing. Uh, and so what's needed there is actually very careful planning. Uh, it's drawing the lines in the sand, at which point you have to force yourself to take the tough decisions that are effectively uh, a retreat from where you hope to be going or a complete reorienting of your strategy from one of growth and glory, if you like, to, to one of survival dust. Um, I won't know of whether we enter into that phase uh, until some week's time when metrics we watch daily uh, start to turn sour. If they do, uh, hopefully they won't. Hopefully they won't. But if they do, then suddenly a uh, uh, the culture and purpose I've talked about will become uh, one that we have to put to the service of survival uh, as opposed to the growth it's been about in the last 22 years. And at that stage, yeah, then I know I will face the real test of whether the honesty uh, and the openness and the culture will work with people who are facing uh, you know, very good news and, and good tidings. I really hope it doesn't come to that, in which case we'll just carry on the charge. We've got uh, clear, uh, clear strategic goals and ambitions laid out through to 2026. Uh, we only did them last year, and they look brilliant, and, and can't wait to get back on the horse and uh, ride them through so that we... Uh, we get to uh, employ far more people and uh, protect far more families because that is what we do for a living. Exactly right. And let's hope that we do start seeing uh, that positive um, outlook sooner rather than later once again. Um, I have to say, Tom, it's been a really insightful and also really pleasurable experience having you on the um, air with us today. And I think it would actually be fantastic for the listeners as well if uh, once we start to see the fog lifting over the next few months and we start to emerge from this, is if maybe we could catch up, have you back on the air with us and maybe just look at how the uh, the business is doing and how the market is changing. Um, but I have to say, um, I've really, really enjoyed today. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me. Got a great pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was Tom Bagry, the CEO of Life Search. Uh, coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Director of 
cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, Sir Andrew Strauss. And as a former England player, Strauss is one of only three England captains to have won at the Ashes, both home and away. And he is also the England captain with the highest amount of test victories in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. um, To have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think 
on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, 
obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel 
comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but hmm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the 
Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, 
what an extra I think was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is r- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.